Hello, everybody. Before we jump into this week's show, I have to remind you once again about just how rad of a magazine Fangoria is. Yes, your beloved KingCast boys calls the Fangoria Podcast Network home, but I've proudly held a Fangoria subscription ever since they relaunched as a premier, highly collectible publication that delivers one issue every quarter right to your very own doorstep. Each single issue of Fangoria explores every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way. The high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll have to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And once you're there, you can even get a little bonus action because you're a listener of this very show. KingCast listeners are in the family, and if you enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout, you can save a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, with all of that said, on with the show! My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Sir! sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. If you're any sort of self-respecting podcast enthusiast, our guest today will likely need no introduction. Uh, for everyone else, you may know Griffin Newman from his work on The Dearly Departed, The Tick, The Deuce, or as Watto on the legendary George Lucas talk show. David Sims is, well, not a cast member on any TV shows we could mention, but <laughs> it's likely you've read his work on The Atlantic. Our friends are here today to talk to us about one of the most maligned Stephen King adaptations of all time, 2003's Dreamcatcher. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Blank Check Podcast to the KingCast stage. How are you doing, guys? Hello. Hey. Hi. Thank you. I, I have to correct you right off the bat. I'm sorry. Yes. I wish I was on the deuce. I was on the far less successful vinyl. Which oh, fuck Those me. were the two 70s HBO shows filming at the same time. I uh, always get those confused. Well, that's, I, a, that's I a good, as well, embarrassing except, way to start. Except the residuals are very different depending on which one you were on. <laughs> that's where I don't get them confused. I'm sorry. You think the deuce gets good? I guess it had three it whole had multiple seasons. seasons. Yeah. yeah, it's just yeah. It's quantity, yeah, baby. Good. Just pure quantity. Yeah, it's in the pure quantity. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Thank you. If thank you could, you if you could have been on any other. Uh, HBO show, what would it have been? If I could have been on any other a period at any point in time? Any point in time. It did Larry Sanders' show is like the HBO oh, yeah. show I would have liked mm. to have been on. Mo but I will say experientially, like vinyl was a disaster, but I got to be in the worst thing Martin Scorsese ever directed, which is still <laughs> a thing that Martin Scorsese directed. You know, so I don't really, oh, yeah. I'm not sure I would trade that experience. I wanted to check that one out and then it Kind of seemed like it was over with before I before I got around to it. There's just yep. entirely too much shit to watch. Yeah, no, not agreed. A, uh, also, not I mean, a judgment not, call. Not particularly worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> why is it? Why is it not good? I'll. I mean, I'll give you guys like the the quickest version of this story. The, the HBO had had like Game of Thrones was really big, and I feel like they had Silicon Valley and a couple other successful comedy shows, but they hadn't had like a prestige HBO drama in a while. And so they sort of loaded all expectations onto this show being like the new mm. 
heavyweight Sunday night adult drama for HBO. And they the just next put, Boardwalk Empire. Right, right. They just put every single ingredient on the pizza at the same time. Like it was just every single topping on every single slice, you know? And just right. the amount of people involved in it and the amount of different story threads and the amount of different things they were trying to pull from stylistically and all that stuff. And then the the most damning thing about it was uh, Scorsese directed the pilot, which was a 60-page script that turned out to be a two-hour episode that they had to cut an hour out of. Uh. It was a three-hour cut he had delivered originally. But part of his terms was he had to deliver his cut of the pilot before a certain date or else they were going to lose all the cast options. And he was mm. going straight into doing silence after uh, he finished filming, which was like two months of filming for a TV pilot. Um, and then on Good the date God. when he had to deliver the pilot, he just sort of shrugged and said, like, I, I didn't get to it in time. I'm sorry. So they oh, shit. picked up the show to series without a pilot in place. And then the crew who worked on the series were, were fairly different people because it was mostly Scorsese's movie people who worked mm. on the pilot. Uh, and it was like new directors and new producers and all this sort of stuff who had never seen a pilot for the show. And they did not see a finished pilot until we were filming episode nine. <laughs> and so I remember... And there on, were only 10 episodes. There were only 10 episodes. <laughs> right. So it was like Terrence Winter and Alan Coulter who are like legendary HBO Sopranos guys. And I just remember on episode 10 them being like, you know, we started adjusting some things based on watching episode one and seeing what works. <laughs> and those were only affected in episode 10. So it was a little doomed in that sense. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Ah, show business. But, yes. look, but look, it turned it still turned out more normal than Dreamcatcher. <laughs> yes, it did. That's true. That's true. Uh, it, Almost it, it's all true. things do. He has going to say the bar graph of things that are are less normal than than uh, Dreamcatcher is very small. It's a very, very teeny tiny wedge. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to thank you guys for having us on uh, Blank Check. Uh, yes. Some months ago, that that was uh, one a lot of fun for us. We came on. We talked about Christine and John Carpenter with you guys, and Barbara Streisand's uh, Weird Mall. Uh, I heard mall. from people about mall. that. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just on a like uh, a professional thing, we got a pretty sizable bump of uh, audience from you guys. Hey, we got hey. uh, it, it would after that appearance, like suddenly it's like, oh, we got a couple thousand more people listening to the show than we did before that. <laughs> well, we're expecting the same from you guys, and we'll compare numbers at oh, the for end sure. of it. And whatever, the <laughs> we're just going to take the the two thousand that came <laughs> yeah. over from we, we have to make you guys it last financially. time financially. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it no, would it, be funny if we lost two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> we did. I mean, it was like the the moment Carpenter won. We had so many people saying, "Like, well, obviously you're going to have the King Cast guys on." <laughs> it was it was one of the most demanded things we had all all of last year. I feel like. Oh, that's awesome well, to hear. We have uh, we have lots of burner accounts, so sure. so, <laughs> so I'm glad to know that that paid off. Um, I, but, I well, I went to Griffin directly as soon as they announced the Carpenter thing. It was like, hey, we take Christine, and he was like, got it. And then we never yeah. talked about it for like six months. That's and... how we do it, baby. And then they swing back around, and yeah. we're like, hey, you can record tomorrow, right? <laughs> we we organize things so fucking far in advance that people don't realize that we've confirmed them and have been planning around it. <laughs> yeah. like oh man, half a year. I, I'm the worst at that too. Like uh, we, we have regular phone calls with the Fangoria team that we set up. That yeah, it's just like oh, just a state of the union. What's going on with us? What's going on with you guys? Kind of you know corporate thing. And they always 
lock it in legit. Like we'll have it one month and then the next month they'll lock in the date like that day and mm-hmm. send like a calendar thing. And I always forget. I always forget. I need I need that reminder like like a day before. I can I, give I, you a reminder. It's on Tuesday this time. Yeah, I saw, that, I saw the the recent email. That's why it was fresh in my mind. I, I legit like wrote it on my schedule this time. But uh. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think David would disagree with this. But like, uh, we we last year went independent. We we produced the show independently now. And yeah. I think one of the major appeals in doing that for us was uh, not having to loop in other people to stuff. <laughs> And just like it's four of us on a spreadsheet that we can look over and text each other. And the whole thing makes sense to us. We don't have to explain it to anyone else. Well, that's right. (laughs) To be fair, uh, when we started, we were flying solo. Sure. And then we got picked up by them and they are extremely hands off. So credit to them on that. I've I've heard some horror stories before and they're just. They're really not chilled. about Fango specifically, but yes, but about uh, yeah, 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 not yeah. Fango but. about podcast networks where he there's like zero micromanagement that that goes on. It's like it's, it feels like we're still doing the same thing, except now they tell us when we have ads and where to put them. You know, that, so that, that that's rolls. pretty much the the thing. Yeah, no, not to not to veer things too much on subject, but I feel like literally I don't remember if it even started on mic at the end of that episode or the second we stopped recording and we're still on the Zoom. You guys threw the ball at us of like, we'd love to have you guys on KingCast. What would you want to do? And I was very open about the fact of like, I've never read a Stephen King book. I've seen a handful of Stephen King movies, like a good portion, but there's so many. I I don't consider Mm -hmm. myself an expert. David's more well versed in this. I'll defer to whatever David wants to do. So for the last couple of months, it's been in this zone where I was just sort of like, I'm up for anything you guys want to throw out if David feels strongly about anything. Uh, I I didn't push things one way or the other. And then when the the message came in of David's made the decision, it's Dreamcatcher, I I felt really excited. Oh, good. Did that excitement last while you were watching the movie? Um, (laughs) It it did. No, it did. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I mean, look, excitement's a general word. (laughs) It, that right. is true. Excitement is a word. Broad yeah. stroke. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is actually a great segue because this is usually when we start talking about our guest uh, Stephen King origin stories. Griffin, I'll go to you first on this because you have not read Stephen King. Yeah. Have yeah, only I... seen some of the movies. So I'm curious then what your like what's your earliest memory of King as like sort of this pop culture presence and what is your uh, opinion of him now? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, it is embarrassing that I have read none of his books. I do. Are you not a horror reader? I I guess I'm not. I don't feel like I'm that much of a a genre reader because I even like, I love like sci-fi short stories, but I rarely go Mm -hmm. in for like a full sci-fi novel and I love genre movie stuff, but I feel, um, uh, most of the books I read are more slice of life or at most sort of like a little bit of magical realism. I usually don't go full into sort of like king level chaos. Um, Murder clowns in a sewer. Right. But I love that stuff in movies. I'm just thinking, I mean, so like I'm, I'm younger and I, I, I mean, I feel like I, I was such a kid who was obsessed with understanding reference points of things in pop culture, you know, like reading Entertainment Weekly from a young age and going to comic book stores mm-hmm. and watching like talk shows and stuff. And when things were offhandedly mentioned as if everyone knew them, I wanted to know what they were, even if I wasn't reading the thing or watching the thing. 
So I just feel like as I'm growing up in the 90s, he's so omnipresent that I have a sense of what like the shorthand of Stephen King is before Mm. I really know what it is. And then there's certain titles that loom so large, like uh, uh, Stand By Me and Shining and It, you know, that I'm like, I get that, you know? So by the time that like stuff like App Pupils coming out and it's like heavily marketed as this is a Stephen King thing, I think I have a notion in my head of what that is as a genre, I guess. But I also think so much of my perception of Stephen King as a young person growing up was that like, (laughs) <laughs> the stuff that leads directly into Dreamcatcher, the like him getting hit by a car, the like uh, the prescription medication uh, overloads and and shit, like that that he he was a weird tabloid fixture at this point in time. And then the years when I'm starting to go see Stephen King movies are this exact period of time, which is I would say not a particularly good stretch you know like like green mile is the high point of this era but even more than shawshank oh well i'm saying post shawshank i'm saying right shawshank is early later in the 90s yeah yeah so i'm sort of like doing a cutoff of like i would say uh, after dolores claiborne right okay Mm -hmm. right on and there's a lot of stuff there so there's some like stinkers in between but obviously like claiborne's big shawshank is big Lawn Mowman's big, Misery's big, you know? Uh, And then from that point on, it's like, right, Thinner, Night Flyer, At Pupil, I remember being very aware of, even though I didn't see at the time. Green Mile, I feel like has a very odd cultural reputation because it was so big at the time and it was such a big Oscar play, but I feel like it was almost Mm -hmm. immediately mocked for being very maudlin and sort of like this is the shittier Shawshank in certain ways. And then Hearts and Atlantis, I definitely saw in theaters, was amped for. And then the second I walked out, I went like, why was I excited for that? I was going to uh, ask, what made you amped for I don't know. I cannot tell you how amped I was, like convincing friends to go see it Friday <laughs> after school. Dreamcatcher, I was also really excited for. I, I had to rewatch it, but I remember this movie having a very normal trailer that just made it look like this is a good buddies in the frozen woods experience supernatural experience thriller that did not belie how insane it was. And then like hmm. secret window, I was very excited for. I think that movie is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1408 is like fun. 1408 is good. Right. Yeah, good movie. Right. That's when it's starting to, I guess like rebound a little bit, but even still, right. I guess it's like 2017 is when they start clicking more. It like definitely kind of ushered in the the new the new golden age of Stephen King right, being adapted right. everywhere. But, right? but I yeah. think after that late nineties early two thousands run is when I start watching some of the more classic ones, and at least appreciating him by osmosis through the movies based on his things. Right. Yeah. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna make a recommendation to you, please. Um, since you like sh- sci fi short stories, mm-hmm. seek out a, a King short story called The Jaunt, okay. which is in a collection called Skeleton Crew. It is one of his all-time best short stories. It's got a great sci-fi conceit to it and uh, just a knockout of an ending. I also, Um, I mean, I love short story collections. So that as a sample title would probably be the best place for me to get into reading King if I'm ever going to. Yeah. And yeah, they're they're great there. You can knock a couple out in the sitting, you know, that kind of thing. It's just a good, disposable is the wrong word, but you know, it's not something you have to commit, you know, like, oh shit, I got to start this book. And that means I got to read every night before bed. And you know, like all that stuff, this, the short story stuff are are great kind of get your, 
your your toes dipped into the Stephen King world for sure. Amazing. I will definitely check that out. Right on. And uh, Dave, let's go over to you. Uh, yes. Where did you start your uh, Stephen King? I, I was just sort of pondering this while Griff was talking. I, I think that the first time I was ever aware of a Stephen King thing was I watched the trailer for Dolores Claiborne when I was a little <laughs> kid. Like I must have been just seeing a movie when I was eight or nine years old. I saw the trailer for what seemed to me like the most grown-up movie ever made. <laughs> it is... I only bring this up because I that is sort of like a weirdly specific child memory of mine where I was just like, what is this movie about? Like, sad adults. The star is Kathy Bates. The, the name of the movie is just a lady's name. Like, I think when I was eight years old, I was like, I don't really know what these kinds of movies are, but I was fascinated by it. Anyway. My first they talk real... funny. They talk funny because well, like they they, sure they, they they really focus on that main accent in the trailer. Those crazy manners. Like, yeah, I remember what was it's like. She has a line. She's like, "I'll send you to the bone yard or something." Like it really <laughs> accentuates that in the in the yeah, trailer. Do, doesn't Dolores uh, uh, Claiborne have that famous line where she says, uh, "the The ground is sour." No, that's Pet Cemetery. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's Dolores Claiborne, yeah. right? Something's yeah. a better dead. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're no, right. Oh, no, Lois, no. Fred Gwynn's in it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Speaking, Pet Cemetery. well, no, no. The first Pet Cemetery might be the first Stephen King book I read. Mm. It was either that or It. I read It fairly young. Because this is going to sound silly, but whatever. Uh, I was fascinated by the miniseries, which uh, was always at the video store. And I would always take it off the shelf, look at the cover with Tim Curry and his clown makeup and be like, this must be the scariest thing ever made. It's just called (laughs) It. He's a clown. I would just be like, this must be the most... Absolutely, like, I I think I would have the thought of like I can't believe this is allowed on a show. Like, I, 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 you know. It is shared across our generation. I yeah, I've talked about that with a lot of people. Yeah, Something yes. about the fact that he's ripping through the box too. Yeah. You know, like on mm. the poster, it's like he's invading. There was something very profound to me as a 10 year old of like, it's not called the scary clown. It's not, it doesn't have some elaborate title. It's just called it. That means that I mean, I can't even grapple with how scary it must be. So I think I read <laughs> it when I was like a young, like maybe 13 years old or something. Cause it was at the library and I was like, well, maybe I can handle it in book form and that'll be my, <laughs> and like, I think it is a terrible starter Stephen King novel in retrospect. Right. It like, is. I think I, yeah. it's too it's damn big. So long and right. And it has so many weird narrative eddies and obviously. Yeah. So, but I, I think that, and then I think I didn't read a lot of King when I was a teenager, but I think I remember I picked up Pet Cemetery at some point and that's still my favorite Stephen King novel and it scared the shit out of me and it was so cool. And the moment when he wakes up in the bed and his feet are covered in soil, I was mm-hmm. just, you know, I, and like that, that was sort of like profound, like, I, you know, I love how a book can be, you know, that memorable and scary. And like... So I like since the, like this is the whole thing. With Stephen King, it's like Star Trek, it's like anime or something. Where I'm like, well, Star Trek, I know a fair amount about, but even Star Trek, I'm like, there are people in the world who are like summa cum laude, you know, PhDs <laughs> about this stuff, and I will always be, you know, a middle school student. Like even even if I've read lots of Stephen King or seen lots of, you know, like it's such a deep rich world and i only know a little 
bit, even though I've probably read like a dozen Stephen King books over the years. I've read all the Dark Tower books. I've read, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yeah, that's that's yeah. a benchmark, though. If you've reached the Dark Tower and you've yeah, read but, the Dark Tower, that feels to me like you're you graduated Stephen King High School, baby. You're, you're fine. I, oh, sure. I always knew I would dig those for some or whatever. Whenever I learned <laughs> about those, because I guess when I was younger, I, I mostly knew King as a horror writer. Most of the movies made of his work are horror movies, you know, and then I was like, wait, he's got some weird, I think there was like a comic book adaptation of the Dark Tower when Mm -hmm. I was a teenager, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, Yeah. in Marvel, yeah. Yes, and I think I checked that out and I was like, this, I gotta, I gotta go all the way in on this, this world. So that was, that was big for me. That's my king. I mean, I, I, what do you think of the movie or do I need to ask? Look, I mean... I actually, there are things about that movie that are interesting. I don't particularly appreciate it as a Dark Tower adaptation, and I don't mm-hmm. think it's a successful blockbuster either. Uh-huh. But there's little bits and pieces. Like I like the two performances. I there's stuff in that movie. I don't know. Like it's probably mostly a missed opportunity thing. But right. There's like little bits and pieces that I remember. Yeah, it's kind of like Dreamcatcher, where I'm like, and this is my hot take about Dreamcatcher, where I'm like. You can get away with things in a blockbuster if you have the Stephen King brand on it, especially back when Dreamcatcher is being made, sort of the early 2000s, late 90s, because studios were just sort of like, well, yeah, sure, he's number one, right? He's the big bestseller. Like, right. if it's in the book, I guess you can film it. Like, go ahead. <laughs> well, there, he has this many readers, certainly that, that. Yeah, like yeah, they're, they're yeah. assuming that the readers get it, so... You know, and the right. audience of those is big enough. And also there there are incredibly strange things that audiences have swallowed in <laughs> Stephen King movies before. Like they accept it as sort of part of the the territory. I'm just I'm looking at this sort of like master list of adaptations in order here. And it is wild that twenty seventeen is like Dark Tower, arguably the nadir in certain ways of King movies. Like certainly <laughs> just with the buildup of that. The anticipation of that for so long and it's totally flatlining and then it's like a month later is it and gerald's game and suddenly he's like mm-hmm. back again like he's the hot yeah. thing yeah and it comes yeah. and goes but but it, i also it, think to david's point like there I, I was so aware of the power of the stephen king branding and the idea of what stephen king was that then when someone would tell you like you know he also wrote stand by me or dolores claiborne or shawshank redemption or whatever You'd go like that can't be the same guy, and if it is sure. the same guy, he must have only written one book that's that different. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> right? And now he's he's getting into, into crime thriller stuff in these yeah, later lots years. of crime stuff, a lot lately, of that. yeah, and it's he's wild. good at it, which is just infuriating. Right, he's yeah. writing these kind of like throwbacky paperback stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. this kind of fun, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the hard case is real good. Yeah, the hard Later. case. Billy is... Summers is fucking awesome. Yeah, the hard case stuff like mirrors uh, a lot of the supernatural stuff. It, it folds a lot of that in. Like one of them, Joy lands a, a kind of a, a ghost story at the center of it, and and later's kind of like his take on the sixth sense. Um, sure, the sixth sense. There we go. I said that correctly that time. Um, and uh, but like Billy Summers is just a uh, with one minor exception, which is a callback to The Shining. Actually, it's like a little Shining Easter egg. Uh, it is a fully just crime guy it's a hitman story so he's following what he loves like that's kind of the the feeling it feels like he relaxed somewhere in like the early 20 teens 
where it's just like, all right, now I'm just going to be doing what I do and do, you know, following my heart. So I'm going to be writing these crimes, uh, uh, trilogies and follow, finding new characters to fall in love with. And like Holly Gibney and bringing her across into multiple different mm. books and stories and, and stuff. And he's definitely on, on a, a, an upswing and has been, you know, f- Jesus for the last, like almost 10 years now. I think. I, but is, I, is it, I, is oh, it Dr. Sleep? No, no, it's okay. But is it Dr. Sleep? Is that sort of the end of him as a, doing horror mostly i don't know sorry go ahead griffin no i was sort of gonna say i mean to, to the point of what you're saying i have this very vivid memory of him on conan and i want to say it was in the mid 2000s and it was for one of those maybe it's the colorado kid like one mm-hmm. of the the hard case books right yeah and they're sort of having a general conversation and at the end Conan gets to like the perfunctory plug and he's like, tell me about this new book you have here. And it's clear like he's got like 30 seconds to sell the book before the set right. gets over. And he just so matter of factly with zero ego is like, you know, it's just kind of like a perfect crime novel. He said like, something like that. You know, it's just like a really excellent, brilliantly written crime novel. Like, what? You, you can just say that casually? And he's like, no, it's like, you know, I'm doing this kind of exercises, this kind of book. And I really, you know, I just think it's like a perfect version of this. And but that finger was like, everyone was kind of stunned where there was like no egomania to it. Like he was just sort of saying, like, I decided the next thing I'm going to do is tackle a different genre and a type of book I grew up loving. And I just, I did it well. I just perfected it right yeah, off I just the bat. Did it well, and it's really fun. It was really easy. I'm probably gonna do more of this now. But it spoke to like how sort of at peace he seemed with himself, especially yeah. compared to like the late '90s, early 2000s King, which was sort of like man- manic and haunted. And you're like, is this guy gonna die? Like, what's going on with him? You know, <laughs> he he gets in these obsession cycles, which is really interesting and something that like I guess I kind of tracked just as a casual reader. And it's having been doing the show, I'm really noticing like there's this whole 90s thing where it's all about spousal abuse. It's, mm. uh, you know, Dolores Claiborne, uh, Rose Matter, but Insomnia. It's like all these books that he wrote right in a row are all involving like d- domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then there's like the 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 aughts where, you know, it feels like he's trying to find his uh, writing legs again after, you know, rec- recovering from the accident and recovering from addiction again. And it's like that kind of 90s and early aughts period is is very bizarre. It also gave us some of his all time great stuff. You know, like you mentioned the Green Mile is, is one of one of the best reads he's ever done. So. Dave, um, you got to stop typing or or mute because that sounds like you are clapping two coconut halves on top. I of love together. my loud keyboard. David it's bought showing the up on the on your sound waves. That's he how he bought the world's is. loudest keyboard, which is a really good move for a professional podcaster. That's right. <laughs> In the middle of a pandemic, I'm he bought. I'm picturing buttons that are like five keyboard. by five inches across, and <laughs> you've got to like slap them like whack a mole. It's unbelievable. Right. <laughs> Welcome to my life. I, I was just, I was wanting to gaslight the the listeners and like waiting for people to go like, am I, is that me? Is that in my head? Am I going crazy? Yeah. Like, crazy clack, 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 clack. I guess I, I must have known this at the time, but it just sort of like reorient myself for this record. The fact that Dreamcatcher is like the throes of recovery novel. Yeah. Like it is, it is the one right. that comes directly out of the accident and trying to get sober and all of that. And not only like is a text about not being able to get over shit, but, but it also just has that sort of 
like f- fever dream aspect to it. I don't know. I mean, I I, I overcommitted myself to podcast records this week, uh, including for uh, our show Blank Check with Griffin Dave. But I just want to run down for the listener. I'm not saying this is a complaint. I just want to reflect where my head is at right now. Uh, you know, because I feel very lucky I get to talk about uh, movies on microphone with my friends. But the things I have watched this week, even <laughs> in the last five days, okay, mm-hmm. are yeah. uh, I've watched um, Kindergarten Cop, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. the entirety of Top of the Lake season two. Which is very <laughs> strange if people don't know. Kind of makes Dreamcatcher feel normal. <laughs> yes. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Good movie. And then there's one yeah. other good movie which we recorded for our podcast, which I can't say because we haven't announced it yet. But but it's mm-hmm. been like a very disorienting week, and this was the last <laughs> thing in that lineup to watch. And there's something about this movie now. My brain is so warped by the parameters of what movies or TV can be that sometimes I was like, I can't process this, and other times I had to stop and remind myself that what I was seeing was weird. <laughs> <laughs> you did you say you saw it in a theater when you were younger you know i i thought i had and watching this today i realized i hadn't i had a false memory of seeing it i think what happened was i wanted to see this so badly i was so into the trailer and i also think i was into a lot of these actors i like i loved jason lee as a teenager unsurprisingly it was kind of- it was, it was mm-hmm. kind of a cast of interesting on the rise actors, right? Yeah. All, all these guys, four yeah. guys who seemed yeah. right, but the four main guys felt like these are the next four leading men. Probably they're like right bubbling on the surface. Thomas Jane, Damian Lewis, Timothy Oliphant, Jason Lee, obviously the four guys who are going to like graduate. And then Donnie Wahlberg, I was very into the Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like oh, he's playing another haunted kid. Uh, and I just thought the trailer looked very atmospheric and effective. And then there was the thing that I imagine got David to go see this in theater was that the, the, the Animatrix short was playing in theaters before mm. it. That's right. Oh, shit. The reviews for this that. were like so hostile that I think it talked me <laughs> out of seeing it. I planned to rent it and then I never did. And I have over the years read so many accounts of this movie, like my year of flops entries and things like that. That yeah. I had such a full understanding of uh, at least the basic events of this movie that I thought I had seen it. And then when I was watching it, I was like, I would remember these images if I had seen them. I created different <laughs> images in my head. I right. never saw this. Yeah. Yes. Some indelible imagery in, in Dreamcatcher. Yeah. So. I, I think in my mind's eye, what I imagine this movie was is, okay, this is like an adaptation of one of like the crazy sort of like manic fever dream king novels and it's william goldman and lawrence kasdan with a great cast doing it a very austere version of a thing that's insane like that's what i thought and what i realized while watching it is no this movie's like legendary reputation comes from the fact that the events as written in the book are impossible to depict on screen without seeming ridiculous but on top of that yes they chose to uh, execute those events in ways that make them even more bizarre than they probably were on paper. Mm. See, that's my whole thing with this movie is I feel like from scene to scene, almost every choice being made is wrong. 
I, I agree, but or, it has some weird cumulative effect where you're like, I'm just in the dream catcher zone now. This yes. is how things <laughs> yes. operate. And that's eventually other. you're like, okay, I guess this happens now. That's sure, the, well, that's the other half of the sentiment. This falls under a banner that I like to call ill-advised cinema. And in those cases, it's not just a bad movie. It's a movie whose foundation was so shaky, it never should have been made in the first place. Yeah. And the script for this and the intent to shoot some of the material that's in it should have warned everyone, like, this is going to seem ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, this does not add up at all. David, can you read verbatim what you texted to me? Absolutely. (laughs) And I was sort of chatting with the boys beforehand about this. Like, at the time, the Stephen King brand was so powerful that he could write this book, hopped up on goofballs, I'm sure we will mention that, pretty much disown it immediately, release it to the book to bad reviews, and Hollywood would still be like, so we should just adapt this right now, right? Like, does it make any sense? Like, you want a $70 million budget? Let's bring in William Goldman and Larry Kasdan, like, Morgan Freeman's on, like, you know what I mean? Like, you guys may be able to tell me a little more of the context of like how Dreamcatcher went over the novel when it came out, but it does not strike me as something that was released and everyone was like, well, oh, this no. thing leaps off the page. I no, mean, this I, thing's I think, gotta be on the big screen. I, I think that my memory of it is that it was very exciting because this, there was kind of a question about, well, one, we, he almost died and like, would we ever get yeah. a new Stephen King book? And like, mm-hmm. okay, he's great. He must be back on the mend. And, you know, like, I remember that feeling of like, cool, hooray, a new Stephen King book. And, uh, but I can't remember, think of anybody that read that and was just like, oh, okay. There was anything more than just like, it's okay, well, that's a thing. 120 pages it's long. It's so long. It's so long. Um, Interminable. It's. But it, it's you know still... what's really crazy? Like I don't know if you, I know Eric knows this, but you guys might not know it. But he wrote this longhand on like yeah. yellow legal pads. And, and right. was the he book wrote it published in cursive? In cursive? Right. Yeah. Am I wrong about that? The book was published in cursive. No, no. no. That would <laughs> be unreadable. Why, why did I see that? I thought I read this somewhere. Okay. Uh, it was uh, he, but he wrote it on legal pads, basically. Like right, maybe not in the hospital, but that was sort of that's sort of the impression you get when you like the legend that builds around things like right. this, right? But he was, was just kind of like feverishly scrawling on a legal pad. All and, and definitely, definitely during his recovery. I mean, cause right. I think the way he put it is that, uh, he just couldn't sit comfortably cause like the accident like shattered his hip, right. his, right. you know, broke his legs and like all this stuff. It was a long multi-year road to, uh, regaining his mobility and he, he couldn't even sit comfortably so he couldn't sit at a computer so he the only way he could write and he just has this compulsion to write and then get his pages in every day was to like you know lay down and, and write it longhand yeah right and he wrote and, this in like the worst six months of recovery while whacked out on oxycontin a thing i i just pulled up i just like to to support what david said here the book is published in september uh, I'm sorry, it's published in February of 2001. The movie is filming in January 2002. It comes out <laughs> March 2003. So it was like a free mm-hmm. trade. Like there was no moment to stop and question, should we still go ahead with this? You know? <laughs> I guess it's not till later that he is like, I don't really like that book, right? Like, I guess he's not he publishing sig- the book. Yeah, it wasn't significantly later. Like a lot of times that that happens where be right. like, you, you see that in movies like guys, somebody will release a movie and then 10 years later they'll go, yeah, that movie was shitty. But, you know, at the time they're like, yeah, it's great. But it was only a couple of years later, I think, that that King was just like, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, that wasn't a good one. Yeah. <laughs> he just very open, blatantly open about it. Yeah. It's also um, maybe uh, maybe uh, Goldman and Kazdan were like, you know, King gets hit by the van. These guys, maybe they're King fans on their own. And maybe they're like, you know, we should do a right. King adaptation. Let's do the new sure. book. And then they just did wrote the script and the studio is like, well, it's Lawrence Kazan. It's William Goldman. Uh, I mean, Goldman did misery. He did Dolores Claiborne, or maybe he just, he just rewrote that or something. And he did hearts in Atlantis, right? And he's certainly a King guy. Regular. Like, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 Maybe as a, a tribute to him, yeah. like surviving the, the thing. I, it was like, let's make this, this. This is basically William Goldman's, I think last produced screenplay. Like I'm almost certain. And I, there's that movie Wild Card. That's the, that's the only that like never came out. Basically, that's the only other one. But uh, I, I'm trying to remember if he wrote about this in one of his later, you know, uh, screenplay books. You know, he would write mm. books about uh, adventures in the screen chair. But I don't think right. he did because I think no, I don't think so. His last one is before this, and I would. I mean, obviously, he's he's uh, he died a few years ago. But like, I would love to know. If he walked away from the Dreamcatcher script, not even the movie, being like, "Yeah, I mean, I, I think I nailed that." Yeah, to be fair, it is a pretty, pretty, uh, uh, it's a pretty solid good, adaptation like, of of right. that. It, like, it the, is faithful. It, the it's, ending it's is faithful different. To that book, yeah. Is the ending different? Like, I think I saw a little like that. There's some tweaks to the ending, but that's about it, right? I couldn't. I, I've never read the book. To be clear, I read the book when it came out, and that was good enough for me. I, uh, I, sure. I, I did yeah. not go back and read it for any previous discussions we've had about Dreamcatcher on the show. I guess this is my question for you guys: is like, so I'm watching this, trying to figure out what of this insanity is inherently baked into the source material, and what are they adding on in their adaptation, right? Or at least almost execution of things. Hmm. Almost anything you're probably identifying as like insane is in the yeah. book. But I also, but this is the thing. I, I textually sure, but there are like tonal choices in this movie that are yes. things a director decides that are insane to me. On top of that, like the banter in this movie, I texted Dave and I was like, this feels like William Goldman trying to do Joss Whedon. The way they're hmm. constantly making these sort of like glib pop culture jokes throughout the entire thing like yeah is that the, the boy banter yeah the, the, yeah the weird conversational passively aggro boy banter peppered with all these like glib asides and pop culture like digs like is that in the book do they talk yeah. about that yeah that, that, there's a lot of that in the book i mean there, there's even there's there's more pop culture stuff in the book one of the topics that we always end up focusing on when we t- discuss this is sure. how the aliens use um pop culture uh, voices when they celebrity speak to voices, yeah. And so, like in the, there's that whole sequence where uh, uh, Kurtz is, is like flying and you know towards the alien ship, and they're like mm. bombing the aliens and destroying all the aliens, right? And uh, in the book, they like psychically reach out and or, or through like the the radio or some shit. It was some weird thing, but they reach out in celebrity voices because that is voices that that the pilots would recognize and they're pleading, you know, for their lives and stuff. So it's like Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt and stuff coming through the the radio or whatnot and in oh, the shit. They should have done that. They, they would have been great. And gotten Oprah gotten everyone to like record a minute of time. a couple more Don't bomb us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's so bizarre because like th- this feels like uh, watching it as a movie 
you're like, this must be one of those unadaptable books on, on two, <laughs> on two levels. <laughs> one, there's no way you can put these things on screen and not make them jarring. Right. But two, sure. there are things like, like J- Jonesy's memory room or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah. Like yep. this entire device memory, of him being uh, warehouse. Yeah. Yes, yes, right. Him being trapped inside his own body and watching through the window and whatever. You're like, these are literary devices that are very hard to visualize. And you're watching how it plays out, how like, you know, split up the narrative is, you know, right. not only between how many characters it is, but different time frames and all this sort of stuff where you're like, this is like a real, even if this book was great, it would be right. very hard to adapt that, bring that to screen in a tidy two hours. It's, uh, it's also and then you, uh, the whole yeah. extra level of you have to figure out butt weasels and shit. You know, <laughs> it, it's two hours fifteen minutes to be clear. Okay. It's not a short movie. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, did but, you, you know, go ahead, guys. Go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just going to say that. Like another challenging aspect of this is that there really isn't a main hero no. of this movie, yeah. right? Like every everybody that you think is kind of going to be the hero at some point, it's maybe it's Jason Lee's character. Nope, he's going to get taken out early. Maybe it's Timothy Oliphant. Nope, he's going to die. You know, right there. There, it's it's a weird thing, and I kind of appreciate that in a in a way because it's then it becomes this atypical thing where you don't know exactly no what's safe. Yeah, no one's safe. You know, you don't know exactly what's going on and who's who's going to save the day and all that stuff. But uh, but it is bizarre that there are these prototypes that are set up. We're introduced to four people that you're going to expect to maybe band together. Nope. And then they just keep getting picked off. It's like, well, this is the new leader. This is the new. And then the guy that's like the most obvious one is the one taken over by the alien. Right. Yeah. So it's messy. It's very messy, but it's very fascinating in in that the the protagonist of the of the movie is just, or the, the story in the, you know, in the book, uh, like you're just, it, it keeps jumping from person to person and you don't really know exactly what direction you're heading in. But that, that's, a, that's also a very challenging thing to you know, uh, engage the audience and bring them on this journey when you, when you don't have somebody that can, you know, carry them with them. I mean, and that's where I agree with David, where it's like, it is fascinating to watch this movie because you cannot imagine any other circumstances that would allow a quote-unquote commercial movie of this size and budget to be this narratively unconventional it's just wild i mean i wonder because i'm just like i'm thinking about the timeline of this and it's like they must have been developing this movie off of a manuscript right like this movie must have been in motion before the book was published if there could be filming that quickly it's harder to imagine that they respond only to like the book after it's been released to to midland response but it's also this kind of thing i'm sure where it's like stephen king's agents are like he's gonna be okay and best news of all he's got a new book he just hand wrote it we're gonna (laughs) ship it over to you and there's just probably a frenzy where people are like yeah, I guess it is good, right? Like everyone's reading this thing in isolation as like the Stephen King book we were worried we were never going to get and going like, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's there's something going on here. And then you get like two of the most respected living screenwriters <laughs> working on uh-huh. this movie together. One is director yeah. and one is writer, but like two guys who are thought of as like gurus of story, right? Right. Just like incredibly intelligent, strategic, dramatic storytellers. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's going to be able to wrestle this into something sane, it's these two guys, despite the fact that like this is not like anything either of them have ever done in their filmography. Even <laughs> though 
Goldman was on a bit of a king kick, they were all very different books than this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's not really yeah. a lot of books that are like this. I guess that's true. That's it does true. have it, it it is it-esque, I guess, in the sort of the group of friends who are kids and they, you know, like they had these right. bonding experiences. Right. But it's definitely got a lot of king themes that yeah. he's hit before. The landmarks. It's just a very right. right. And the sort of vague psychic powers, like, but that only makes it weirder, I guess. That, that you're sort yeah. of like, huh, this, this looks like a Stephen King novel, but now I'm turning it and it's actually going to eat me. Like, I, I, you know, it's called Dreamcatcher. Why is it called Dream? Like, did you know the tagline for this movie was four friends hung a Dreamcatcher in their cabin? It's about to catch something. It cannot stop. One, <laughs> no, they didn't. Two, yeah. it's about to catch something it cannot stop? That doesn't make any sense. This is the trailer for it. this movie, I think, I thought watching it, here looks like an atmospheric, four actors I like in a cabin, whatever is haunting them seems to be mysterious from this trailer. I assume this is like a Wendigo movie or something, you know? Mm. Like, I think that's what I thought, where it's like, oh, it is, it's just a very straightforward, they hung up a dream catcher, protect the evil spirits, and there is some evil spirit that these guys are fighting, and it's a male bonding movie. Mm -hmm. Which is, the four guys barely spend any time together. (laughs) It's such a mishmash of other Stephen King ideas, just kind of recycled into one, and... I think that it feeds into the weird, uneven tonality of the book as as well as the movie. And, you know, to your point earlier, it's it's a matter of visualizing it. You can get away with more in a book than you can showing it to somebody in the in the cold light of day with their fucking bare eyes like shit weasels and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you'll I, go I along like, with that in the book. But absolutely. When David and I talk about uh, movies on our podcast that are based on adapted from things that we've never seen. Right. I feel like we'll often do this thing where we look up what the major differences are. And there are things that you go, oh, so in the book it was this and they cut this or they Mm -hmm. change it to this. That makes perfect sense. Like when you read what it was in the book, you go, I could imagine that working in a book, but there's obviously no way to put that on screen or that's too confusing. And this feels like a prime example of them being like, we cut the thing where they all have the psychic connection because that's just one element too many. Or in the book, they were butt weasels and we changed them to a different type of creature because you can't put butt weasels on a screen, you know? (laughs) Right. There are all these things in the movie where you're like, they should have, it feels like they should have made at least two major decisions about how to strongly differentiate or remove elements from the book because it's just too overloaded and every element is so weird and so complex. And instead it's like, no, everything, we put everything in there exactly as it was. That's right, folks. It's time for the mid-roll ad read. Once again, brought to you by the good folks at Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is this week's sponsor and has a product we use literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking Athletic Greens because I am I am getting back into working out, feeling kind of shitty in general because I haven't been taking my vitamins and whatnot. I've been living on a steady, you know, diet of beer and corn dogs or whatever the fuck for the last <laughs> uh, last two years, as far as I can tell. Yes, pizza um, rolls, lots of pizza rolls. Antidepressants, yes. But Athletic Greens, we, we got in bed with these folks, and they are great. It, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. In fact, it has kind of a, like a mild tropical taste that I actually 
look forward to each morning, Mm. but it's the good stuff. So what is it? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something I definitely need while recording this show. Also, it's you know recommended by pro athletes, not just podcast hosts who are kind of doughy. Uh, <laughs> right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season, and for less than $3 a day. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every time. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Just put the scoop in the goddamn water and drink it. (laughs) To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel bags with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Great job, Scott. Killed it. Killed it. Crushing it out here. Yeah, we want all of our KingCast listeners to be healthy because we have a hell of a lot of great shit in store for you and you need to stick around for it. So drink your vitamins, folks. Yeah, do that. All right. Now, I think it's time to get back to some shit weasels, don't you think? Back to the show. To that point. I think that if I were adapting this, the obvious thing to go would be the whole Duddits plot line. Yeah. Right, right. Right, right out. First right. thing. Like, we'll find another way to resolve this conflict that, you know, the movie the movie uh, shows us. But uh, it's not going to be that because that shit is going to be ridiculous. And uh-huh. sure enough, like, all the Duddits stuff is, like, weird and off-putting and just, yeah. like, there's it, so much about... I, I rewatched it this morning. And on this view, I fuck, I dislike this movie more and more every time I see it. I was just seething <laughs> at it today. Um, <laughs> but but one new thing I picked up on is how cumulatively gross the whole fucking thing is. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. all this stuff with farts. There's stuff very with gross. Things coming out of your ass. Uh, not farts, but shit weasels. Um, there's all this stuff with the special needs kid that just rings completely hollow. And yeah. again, it's just super off putting. Right. Um, and then there's this like lengthy scene where Timmy, Timothy, all Olif- Timmy, Oliphant, uh, <laughs> takes a big Timmy steamy there. piss yeah. in the snow and he's spelling out dudded. It's his name. And you're just watching this like <laughs> lime green urine hit the snow. Like, <laughs> and it's just disgusting. I'm like, there's, this movie is like unpleasant to even like look at a lot of the time or yeah, think about as you're you, watching it. The piss then goes directly into the mouth of a shit weasel that was hiding in the snow and then tries <laughs> yeah. to bite his dick off. Like yep. even yeah. that isolated moment where you described would be one of those things where you tell people, do you know that this happens in this movie? And they'd be like, what are you talking about? There's a scene. Be, that, that can't Timothy be true. Oliphant yeah, right. Writes the name of his like mentally handicapped childhood friend <laughs> in the snow with his urine. And you're like, uh-huh. and then a thing that used to be in a dead guy's butt comes out and tries to eat his dick <laughs> and then he says that and then he says like that shit weasel tried to eat my dick For, forgetting even what you're saying basically the start of this movie is like scene one thomas jane oh. uh, re- reads a guy's mind 
while being a psychiatrist and then tries to kill himself or is about to shoot himself in the head. Scene two, Uh Damian Lewis inexplicably walks into traffic and gets run over by a car. Scene three, (laughs) Damian Lewis in the ambulance has a vision of a little boy who's like, watch out for Mr. Gray in a weird voice. Like, Every like, this is like a Cannes Film Festival. People would be booing, yes. they'd be standing up and leaving, yeah. which again, I like. I'm like, I, I like the idea of some, you know, grandma and grandpa being like, well, let's go to the movies today. What's this the new <laughs> Stephen King movie? Sure. And then like being hit with that. And then the movie being like, we're not going to slow down, by the way. This is building to shit weasels. Like, this, right. is, this is us, you know, like, this is us uh, getting started. Like, it, it's not, a, we're not going to shrink start, this or explain this quickly or anything like that. You start one, the movie one of those with essentially op- four consecutive cold opens, right? Uh-huh. Which, yes. which is very jarring. The internal logic of each one is confusing. And they stack on top of each other without really communicating with each other, other than the sense of, like, these four guys each have something weird going on and it seems to be the same thing, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. I think and the Oliphant one is the... Go ahead, go ahead. Is the weirdest? I think it's, again, very off-putting. Like, sure. yes. <clears throat> he's yes. helping the lady find her missing or, uh, her find her missing car keys, right? Uh-huh. But Timothy Oliphant, one of the most uh, very charming. handsome, handsome yes. men on the planet, here is rendered with one of the worst haircuts I've ever seen on his head. Crazy haircut. There's something weird wig. And there's like something, I don't know what it was. I was trying to figure it out and I could never could, but like when he first shows up, it looks like he's wearing, like he's wearing adult braces and you're like, what the fuck? But it's just something weird with the, with his teeth. I don't know what the fuck was going on there. I even paused it and tried to figure it out. (laughs) Well, I think it was maybe just poor lighting, but the other guys we've met at this point, seem entirely burdened by this gift, right? And then Oliphant's the one who's kind of using it in a meat-cute way, but he feels... It's like he feels so guilty about the fact that he's using this to pick the woman up as he's doing it. Like, there's something that's not charming or impressive about it. It's kind of creepy. Not just It's because, very creepy. Not just because he's manipulating her, but even just the energy with which he's like, look, I found your keys. It's yeah. like, you hate that you're doing this. Right. She doesn't and seem she's not responding it. whatsoever to right. it either. She's weirded out by she's it. So like, we're weirded out I by it. I have to go to fucking dinner with you now. The last time I watched this before this viewing was with my wife. And uh, we're watching that scene. I was like, man, this is fucking creepy, dude. And she was like, what's creepy about it? And I'm like, you don't find anything like strange about how he's behaving. And like, what if you were the lady? What if you were looking for your car keys? Right. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I get my car keys back. You know, I'd be pretty happy. I'm like, but what about literally everything else going on in this sequence? <laughs> like, like from the second, he's like, you didn't buy the aspirin first. You bought a Mars bar. You're like, what the fuck? Like, the I fuck? would just think this guy was stalking me or he's got cameras right. set up all over the fucking right. media But he goes, area look, what, what's about to happen is weird, but it helps me. And then he does his finger thing. And it's like, that's the only thing you feel the need to warn her about. <laughs> that's not the weirdest thing you're doing right now. Um, but that's like that's an example for me of like if you're reading this book, a thing I have not done, right? And this happens at the beginning. Maybe you, as Kazan and Goldman, go, "Huh, that's an interesting starting point for a movie." 
maybe we're just unpacking a movie off of this starting point of four friends who have this experience and they grow up with this psychic connection and how it affects their lives. But there's so much in this first 10 minutes and these four introductions that the fact that it's like, but ultimately this isn't the important thing. The important thing is the aliens is insane, insane. Just like so much on the fucking plate of this movie. Yeah, they spend way more time showing you why you why these characters are unlikable than they yes. actually show the characters like having any sense of camaraderie. Right. You barely understand why they're friends apart from this one flashback where it's all about how they're helping Didums anyway. It's not even Didums. 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 Jesus. Didums. No, no. It's but like it's not. Yeah, like Didums is a really good name, by the way. It's uh, Duddits, uh, my it's friend. Duddits. Duddits. There you go. See, I don't even. What am I? Didits. Didums. Duddits. But like one and the same. When I was watching bear- it earlier, I got a thing in my head where I was singing I Duddits to uh, foreigners. Uh, Hot blooded. Like, <laughs> it. Can't you see? <laughs> it's like it's uh, like it. I feel like does a fairly good job introducing you to all the idiosyncrasies of these characters as kids mm-hmm. and yeah. the ways their relationships work with each other, right? And like you know, like whereas like I barely understand why these guys were friends. And yes. One of them can run fast, right? All of them could run fast. That's, that right. seems to be about it, right? Like they, it's, they, they're not really heavy on personality. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they bond over seeing a, a, a nude pin up through a dirty window. Yeah. Yes, and of course, uh, Jason Lee's character Beaver likes uh, toothpicks. The, 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 right. the, the yes. fucking toothpick thing. So I our, swear our to God. buddy uh, Alex Ross Perry, who's who's working on uh, a King adaptation of his own, uh, Dark Half. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or is he working on two right now? Is that he's working on the dark half? I think he might have some, but the dark half is the main thing he's working. Okay. On. Um, yeah. But uh, he he gifted us with a term that we use a lot in talking about movies. Uh, it's a term that he uses with his wife and friends, which is the blender, which is when a character in a movie has a thing that feels like it's a defining part of their personality, but it has no actual impact on the story whatsoever. And it almost it's a always, reference to uh, Will Smith's character in Enemy of the State, who never shuts up about his blender. Right, that he always wants gotcha. to like, so you, take his so blender. You could with lift the state. blender out of the movie. Like, like it's setting up a payoff that no... never comes. Right, right and, exactly. and, and that the idea is in most cases, the blender feels like it's probably the actor in like notes meetings and development meetings being like, I feel like I need a thing here. And they do a rewrite where they give you some <laughs> fucking gimmick that doesn't require ripple effects in rewriting the rest of the script. But it's like a thing for them to sort of hang their hat on. And the Jason Lee toothpick thing in this movie is such an incredible blender because it is set up with with such specificity. There's such an intensity to his routine, his weird little carrying case, that his actual Mm -hmm. adult introduction is the fact that he keeps the toothpick in his mouth while taking the shot, you know? And that that's framed so lovingly and that it's sort of the demise of this character that he reaches Mm -hmm. for the toothpick on the floor and that when the toothpicks pump up they get knocked into the air by the shit weasel in the toilet that it's this tragic moment except it's fucking nothing it's nothing it's nothing it could have been his glasses that fell on the floor like it could have been anything the toothpick has no explanation it's not seemingly grounded in some trauma you know but it's like the only thing this guy has you would think that it would have been like the um, the the little girl that that won't finish her water in the, in signs right. or something, exactly. right? Where exactly. it's going to have some random 
you know, character quirk that has a payoff at the end. And the only payoff it has is that he is so addicted to toothpicks, he has to risk letting a monster out of a toilet because he has to grab one that's on the floor, on a bloody, shitty floor. That could Uh, be literally anything. It could be cigarettes. And if the movie starts and the guy can't stop smoking, we go, oh, yes, I know this guy, right? Mm -hmm. That's the normal version of the toothpick obsession. It could be his glasses fell off his fucking face. But that's his primary characterization. That's yeah, like, it, you remember it. Toothpicks. You remember Jason Lee and <laughs> those toothpicks. All these characters, though, are just collections of quirks. I have no sense right. of them as human beings. It's all no. like, well, that's no. the one that does the weird thing with his finger. Uh, that one has a beard. That one <laughs> likes toothpicks. You know, it's yeah. there's there's not really much to hold on to them in terms of yeah. being like relatable yeah. people. That military guy's got bushy eyebrows. And on the fucking... Oh. On the toothpick sure front, there is a hilarious part in this where it's when the animals f- like flee through the forest, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so Jason Lee and the other guy go outside. There's a helicopter buzzing them, and they're like, "You're under quarantine." Blah blah blah. And like the fucking, they're like right overhead. So the chopper is just like trees are bending in all directions. You know, it's very windy. They're screaming back and forth at each other, and Jason Lee keeps the motherfucking toothpick in his mouth the whole time, and you can tell he's just like. Someone gave him a note before that scene. It was like, you've got to make sure that toothpick does not leave your mouth during yes. the scene. So he's yes. like screaming through like clenched teeth. It's ridiculous. It's the whole <laughs> fucking thing. Yeah, it's 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 so bizarre. And like, I, I love Jason Lee, especially at this period in time. I was like, this is the coolest guy in movies, right? Mm-hmm. This is like mm-hmm. the guy I wish was my friend in real life. Right. And this is one of the rare films, especially of this era, that I think makes him so aggressively annoying that I want to punch him <laughs> in the face every time he talks. Like, I'm such right. a sucker for this sort of, like, shit-eating Jason Lee, overly casual, fucking quippy thing. And yeah. in this one, he's, like, unbearable. And I can't blame him for it, really. really high, yeah. yeah. But everyone is, also. I mean, it's like, that's uh, the thing yeah. about, like, the whole <laughs> tone of this movie is... Well- odd on top on top of what's happening in the story thomas jane who's a weird actor in general is not dialed up he's kind of dialed all the way down in a weird like that's contrast, right he's doing his odd cowboy thing he's like "Mm, i don't know which is which is also weird in its own way and then oliphant like we said He's got it's that whole thing with early timothy oliphant where he would pop in movies like go or scream 2 or whatever but you were you were also kind of like, I feel like Hollywood doesn't know what to do with this guy. Like he's kind of too handsome for some of the roles he's getting. Like they're trying to sort of scruff him up. Or, I don't know. It took until Justified or, or Deadwood, I guess, and then Justified for us to like to get Oliphant's vibe. Yeah. And then Damian Lewis was an actor who at the time I was like, really in on like because i guess of band of brothers that was the whole thing right like he was and, less known yeah. than his other three guys but band of brothers was such a big calling card because it's like and he's Hanks so and spielberg chose him you know yeah right and then this i mean i like damian lewis in general i enjoyed damian lewis going big this performance is is bananas like him as jonesy is whatever you know him just sort of playing uh, an American, you know, his American accent is, but then when he is switching to not even his accent, but like this exaggerated English accent, having conversations with himself, doing weird kind of twitches and like, you know, kind of, it is 
an unhinged performance and I feel like it's just not remembered because this movie is not remembered. So it's sort of like swept under the rug, but it's such a weird, weird, weird piece of And I think on a technical level, it's the best performance in the movie. Like I I think- Yes, it's the most compelling. And he certainly figures out how to execute the insane things that are asked of him most successfully. Like no one in this movie is normal, but it is- Can I just- Yeah, the pivots are- Don't yell at me. Do it. I think Morgan Freeman's kind of great. You are insane. <laughs> you are a lunatic. Uh, I mean, David, not uh, in like a, again, uh, can you like a, um, can you plead yeah, a case ahead. for that? Yeah, can you explain Look, yourself? I feel the character, and I I want to triple check this. I believe the character is actually called Colonel Kurtz in the novel. Which is yes. one of the few they call him Colonel Curtis here. Mm-hmm. That feels like one of the few moments where Goldman and Kasdan were like. Well, we can't actually just have <laughs> right. like right. that, that. That would be too much. The but only yeah, thing they push like back a, on in the entire book. <laughs> that, that feels like a Stephen King's, like, I'm writing this a longhand. He's a Colonel Kurtz type. I'll just call him Colonel Kurtz. I'll go back and check it later. And then yeah. he's, like, just, like, FedExing his legal pads over. And they're like, I guess he called the character Colonel Kurtz. Okay. Um, I feel like the easy way to do this performance would be to go huge Mm-hmm. And obviously Morgan Freeman is going huge in terms of his look, uh, in terms of his eyebrows, right? But, like, he weirdly is kind of playing it as this sort of calm psycho. And I I think the scene where he shoots the guy's hand off is kind of great. I just think it's weird. <laughs> I think that it scene is. is kind of fun, but I do... I, I was watching it the whole time, and I was like, this is written like a Samuel L. Jackson part. Like down yes. to the amount uh, yeah. of like yes. nicknames yes. and motherfuckers right. Right. and shit like that, yeah. and you just it's kind of so never weird. get past how much that's butting up against your sense of Morgan Freeman. Guys, <laughs> this movie is so weird. Just the <laughs> premise with him is he's like, I've been hunting these aliens for twenty five years, and I'm like, you have? Wait, what? Right. Like, <laughs> that, but that's like another thing. For this movie to get into, like, an hour in, right? Like, you have the brief moment of him in the helicopter, but essentially the first time you get into, like, his mobile command station is, like, 55 minutes into the movie, I think. And now it's just opening up this whole other book of, like, this is the alien task force. He is, like, the supreme badass of the alien task force. Here's how they operate. Here are his own weird personal rules. And now we're also going to call into question whether this guy you met five minutes ago has always been this insane or is starting to lose his mind. Hmm. Well, and you're right that this sequence like has a completely different energy. And I like the energy more in, in the task force stuff. It's, it's not any less insane, but it's, I don't know. It's a little bit cleaner in a weird way. Like you, you buy it a little bit more. And I think Tom Sizemore, uh, weirdly enough, is probably the most consistent dude in the movie. He's he's um, weirdly in the pocket, just playing pretty is, steady, normal. Dude. He, this, he this is, is the most normal guy. That's like, yeah, 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 that, that is weird. The, the, and and I, that's my, like my that's theory like, on that is he showed up to set and was like acting opposite Morgan Freeman. No meth for me on this shoot. And <laughs> sure, right, he had right, to right. Sort of uh, play. It, it, it would yeah. be. It'd be like praising Gary Busey for being the the like the most stable thing in a in a movie. You know it, what I mean? It's, it's such a weird wild. thing yeah. that it is Tom Sizemore that's like the rock of this movie. And he he's not only a rock in the borderline weird scenes, but like in the absolute bug fuck insane scenes that 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 he has, like the scene with Tom Jane where he's talking into the fucking gun. Yeah. Yes. You know, like and, and the way Sizemore plays it is 
is he's like the everyman. He's the audience looking at it, like looking at this, this dude sitting next to him, talking into a gun, like a telephone, you know, you know, it is. for, for Goldman and Kazan, both being sort of just like legendary geniuses of like screenwriting integrity. Right. There's the scene <laughs> where they're in the van that Sizemore's driving and Thomas Jane is trying to keep Duddits alive and get the messages yeah. out of him and then translate them immediately to Sizemore, where yeah. Jane has to play this sort of like thinking out loud thing constantly where he's like, Duddits, Duddits, we've always loved you. Come on, Duddits, tell me what's going on here. Ubi gay, duba day. He's saying we have to uba gay. The, the water, it's the water. And it's like, I was like, what does this scene remind me of? And the thing it reminded me of is... Twilight Zone, a show I love, right, would have such heady concepts that they have to condense into 30 minutes of television that you will grant within the theatrical acting styles of the 50s and 60s, a scene where an actor puts the whole thing together and explains it dramatically like that, right? Yes. In the tone of like Adam West Batman solving a mystery where he's like, penguin feet marks the penguin the penguin stole the jewels you know yeah you're right. and it's, it's like that's happening the last 10 minutes of this movie as they're getting ready to fight an alien and like you said somehow sizemore is the one guy who's playing it real yeah i would you like can't to talk. believe that like that kasdan and lawrence uh kasdan goldman uh, rather couldn't find a way to make that scene more elegant but at that moment, I guess you're too deep into the madness of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's no painting yourself out of that corner yeah. at that point. <laughs> at your mention of aliens, though, I would like to discuss the look of the aliens in this movie. Not necessarily the shit weasels, which we've already touched on, but the just grotesquely uh, inefficient rendering of these gray alien things that also turn into like giant fetuses almost that like (laughs) right they look like little shrimp running along the ground when they transform and run Mm -hmm. and uh it's like a live action rick and morty whenever you see these these aliens yeah yeah um the visual effects in this film are very bad i don't want to be rude to anybody but for a fairly expensive film that otherwise has something like this film shot by john seal there's some shot making in it that is fairly effective but those aliens, beyond the fact that they're kind of, like you said, kind of just like knockoff generic grays, like, you know. It looked, it looked like they were pulled off a screensaver circa 1996. Yes. They also just like, they don't interact with the world at all. Like, they feel no. fake in the movie almost. Like, and because they're so implausible, like when, you know, one comes out of a guy's butt and then another one turns into a giant gray alien, like out of nowhere and then explodes in a crowd of red dust. You're almost like, is this just being imagined? Like, is this not like when you then have the big sequence of the, the bombing of the spaceship here, you're like, I guess this is actually just going on. It's almost disappointing because yeah, they just, they don't vibe with the, the, the tactile environments at all. It's right. interesting that this movie is like nine months after science comes out. And I feel like science gets dinged with like, Oh, the air gets let out of the balloon when you see the aliens. Bad aliens. Right. aliens. It's so much better when they're in shadow and you get the full reveal. It doesn't work. And then this, it's just like, it it is odd that they took the most sort of standard idea of an alien design. Like the alien you would put on like a birthday party favor bag, right? Where it's just like, 
gray, skinny, bulbous head, almond-eyed alien. And then they didn't add any unique sort of angle to that design. They just made it as unappealing as possible. And not yeah, just well. in like the low quality of the, the effects, but even just design-wise, every change they made just kind of makes your skin crawl and not, I feel like, in the right way. Right. Well, I mean, I think the whole conceit with the alien is that the the gray alien that you see is just what people assume aliens are, and that's it's what it's projecting on you know on people, and that it's that weird shrimp thing is what it really is. Right. So it's it's never the the uh, traditional alien, the the close encounters alien or whatever design uh, for real, but it knows that that's what the broad population's image of alien, the peaceful aliens are. So that's why it shows up like, like that to people, but it's, it's, it's more of an idea than something that's ever really communicated in the, it's, it's sloppy in the book, but it's never communicated really in the, in the movie. Yeah. I did not pick that up in watching it today. I was, Uh, in fact, I was confused about the life cycle of the fucking things until like, uh, toward the end, like w- one yeah. of the shit weasels kind of crawls up the body. I guess that could be a, a baby. Well, that's what I didn't take. Uh, like, you know, there's like a face hugger, a chest burster. That's, a my, zebra, yeah. that's right? my exact question. Is the is the shit weasel a chest burster? Is it a face hugger or is it right? Because it's like the the chest burster is the primordial form of what we know will turn into the classic thing. Or is yes. this the thing that allows the thing to then be born? I honestly don't know. They could also uh, be like little weapons or pets or something. Right. Shit, yeah. You know, the shrimp monsters could be like enslaving or otherwise uh, keeping under contract these uh, other shit weasels to sort of do their bidding. But uh, I, I don't know. I get the impression they're all related, but I couldn't tell you with a gun to my head like how it all <laughs> works. I just know in the book, which I assume in general explains this more. It's a little clearer that like the gray alien is sort of just a mental projection they're doing because yes. that's how we perceive an yes. alien. Like, you know, they're yes. like, I'll turn into the thing you think I am, like just to make this easier. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not so clear in the movie to be like, to be no, no. no. So my, my number one question for you guys is, are the eyebrows in the book? <laughs> yes yes they are yeah okay. that's, yeah that's like i think he's just a specific detail of this guy it, it is it's a really bizarre thing i mean in uh in the book kurtz is white um, okay and so like i i know reading it like i was picturing arlie army you know i think that he was sure. describing essentially arlie army right. and right. morgan freeman essentially plays arlie army down to the eyebrows right another um, guy who you could have seen absolutely playing this role and it's odd to have the sort of like taciturn freeman energy look he's played bad guys before right like right. his outbreak character is is not dissimilar to this in terms of story function mm. but the energy of how this guy is written his like big swinging dick demeanor him calling everyone what, what is it bucko right S- sunny i don't know right. he's got a lot of weird he's irish in the book right 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 this weird he's so story, weird like, that's a thing that's hard to accept coming out of morgan freeman's mouth but but so but so was red and and shawshank was written as a white irishman so maybe that was their their like thought like ooh, the last time morgan freeman played a a white character in a book we got shawshank from his only two stephen king performances that's funny to consider Ooh, good they question. Might be. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so, unless we're missing Man's something. Done a lot of movies. Yeah, I can't think of another. And I mean, it, it just I mean, at this point, he's a pretty 
huge star. Like, not that mm-hmm. Morgan yeah. Freeman does not remain a massive name, but like, you know, he's coming off of like Along Came a Spider and those kinds of, you know, like right. he Sha- feels like yeah, Sh- Shawshank and Seven, you know, kind of one two punch, rocketed huge. him right. into stardom, right? Well, yeah. that's right. the other so, thing like, is like he's he's the name, to... yeah. Oh, absolutely, he's top you, He's right. Yeah, no, I know, but that lets you cast, you know, some more up and coming actors around him, or right? Whatever. You can just put him at the top, right? As I remember it, he was not even in the trailer, or if he was, it was a fleeting glimpse because I remember the eyebrows being a surprise to people when they saw the movie. <laughs> but they weren't hiding that he was in it. But the trailer was all the guys, and it's yeah. like, who? What mysterious figure is Morgan Freeman going to be revealed to to be in this movie? I do think like he wins his Oscar two years after this, and yeah. it very much felt like they're giving him the makeup Oscar for uh, Shawshank, which is really hitting. Oh, it's like I thought you were going to say the makeup Oscar oh, for, for that oh, yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. Just <laughs> like yeah, that's the way the the Oscar nominating body thinks. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Talking about like what a big star he is at this time, all of that's like true, but it also is like this is maybe when Shawshank is like peaking. Like this movie's coming out at the point of time where Shawshank is maybe taking over the IMDb list, where it's officially yeah. it's sort of like graduated to classic status from TNT rotation, and like same with Seven, like two movies that have come He's out. He's playing god in bruce almighty this right. year you know right. he's like sort of at that level now obviously yeah. he's the president in deep yeah. impact or you know yeah right. right it's like this morgan freeman he's one of the top americans we all right. agree yeah. but those two yeah. 90s performances had just become so huge in like the eight years following that right now he's yeah. graduated too he has to play the president or god or whatever it is and we all agree he should have won oscars for the earlier movies and then for this yeah. kind of know that's just bananas He's obviously he's not the worst the only, performance. Oh, no, no. It, I was gonna say he's arguably the only one who it feels like career is not dinged by this. I, I would argue every other person involved in this movie at least got knocked back a step. Yeah, that seems yes. fair. I mean, Sizemore basically stops being in legitimate movies soon after. Now that's right. That's that, not but that's also really a dream catcher thing, right? right. Yes. yes. It was more of a drug thing, but maybe right. maybe the two are intertwined. You don't know. So Damian Lewis never has a movie star career. He obviously has a you know a great TV star career, but it takes a uh, while. And, like his next good yeah, role it takes is, him a while. is Keen, which is a very small movie that he's very excellent in. Right, right. Uh, and then yeah, Oliphant obviously you know moves over to Deadwood, and that's you know again, like a lot of these guys move to TV. When is Tom Jane played the Punisher? Is a that year later. Yeah, a year right. later, a year that's a after weird this performance. is the Punisher, wow. and that's like I guess yeah. we're finally supposed to like make this guy a movie star, and then that doesn't work. And then Jason Lee, even it's like after this, it's pretty much like Incredibles, but then like okay, he's going to go to TV, which seemed like a crazy thing at that moment. To be fair, yeah. I don't think you know, and I guess this isn't really arguing against your point, but Tom Jane shouldn't be a leading actor. I you know no, he's a fucking character no. guy through yeah. and through and through. You know, um, but, but like Hollywood, I, mean, I remember pretty time, certain he was for a while. Right, he's there. tall. And, well, Hollywood you know, does that chiseled. shit. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. I mean, I remember at the time being just like that guy is called Tom Jane. That's not. That's not a name. That's like not going to work. He needs a different name. I was <laughs> yeah. just like, I'm resistant enough to the sort of bland sounding movie star names, or whatever, but I was just like, come on. I know it's it's not actually his name. He's like Thomas Elliot or something, but like, yeah, uh, it just it just never rolled off. The Tom Jane is the Punisher. It just was never going to work for me. Have you ever you, met him? Yeah. 
I, no. I, I was in a movie with well, Griffin's uh, worked with them, right? Um, yeah, I played. Uh, it's, this was a movie that was shot under the title Samaritan, but was released under the title uh, Butt Whistle, which I can't imagine after doing. I'm sorry. Dreamcatcher that Thomas Jane would allow himself to be in a movie called Butt Whistle. Uh, Too much butt stuff in his career. But he played a detective in this movie that's sort of like a running B-plot or C-plot. And he thought it would be funny if Michael Sarah was his partner, if it was like an odd couple cop thing. And this movie was made for like $2. And unsurprisingly, Michael Sarah wouldn't do it. So then they, like a week before production, were like, we'll find some cheap Michael Sarah. So I got cast to play his detective partner. I think I was 23. Oh, and man. He has, with leg- is legend with him, refuses to wear shoes. Yep. Oh, like, yes. Uh, showed up on set, you know, drove himself to set, got out of a car, walked on the road into, like, uh, the gravel-lined backyard of this house, totally barefoot. Uh, and We had him on the show once, and I asked him about this, and he yeah. got kind of mad. And um, called them foot prisons. Shoes yep. are foot prisons. Uh huh. Yep. Look, sure. Yep. Whatever. He like he got. He wasn't like. Ha ha. I know. Like I. No, he's very no, serious. He, he said. I said no, so. Fuck shoes. Like, I. I. Well, what I said was, I was like, I've been in the room with you a few times, and uh, you are frequently not wearing shoes. What's going yeah. on with that? And he was like, uh, Well, apparently, I guess I do it so motherfuckers can ask me why I don't wear shoes all the time. Or something well, to that you know effect. What, he, he got very defensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, he just laughed. I mean, it was funny, but uh, he was right. he was like kind of being funny, but you could also tell oh, he's tired of talking about this. But I, if you I found him do a thing where you're not wearing guy. shoes all the time, yeah, huh? I found him to be a fairly serious guy. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, I, my, my one good anecdote to share about him, and it was just like it was a very bizarre day where he had such limited availability that we were shooting like fifteen pages in one day across like six different locations or something. So it was like a pretty manic day. But the first thing we had to shoot was taking this kid out of his house and arresting him, and we we're like pinning him up against the car or something. And I think he said like the kid should do it, not me. It'll be funnier to watch the kid do it, talking about me. Uh, but it also felt like maybe he was tired and he didn't want to have to do the whole physical thing. <laughs> so the way the shot was, it was like, we pull him out of his house, we handcuff, we put him up against the car, we, we you know shove his head down, we get him in the back seat, and then the car drives off. And the camera stays there, and then we were going to shoot the shit inside the car, right? So at the end of this shot, the car has to drive off, he's driving, and then we just have to circle the entire square block to get back to camera one so we would do the scene and then they would call cut but we would still be driving for like a minute or two in a car with the scene done until we could get back to the reset point and he was like very uh stoic uh seemed very serious and intense and the lead actor in the movie this guy trevor morgan uh was trying to make small talk with him and was like so you know they it, we hear cut in the radio we're just the three of us sitting silently in this car together and trevor goes uh tom i heard you just shot a movie with my my friend blank blank and he's like oh yeah 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 you know that guy and he goes yeah yeah you were shooting in chicago right and he's like uh, yeah and he goes uh you know i'm from chicago i you know what did what did you think had you had you ever been there before had you ever worked there before and he just sits there in silence and he goes, Chicago, nice city. 
<laughs> windy. He just says yep. windy. Okay. Windy. And then, and then just drives in silence for the next two minutes. Windy. <laughs> I, I know. I noticed that he calls everybody pal. That's his thing. Yeah. Hey, pal. Yeah. What's up, yeah. pal? Yeah. How, how you doing, pal? But it's, it's time, pal. Vaguely aggro when he says it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just it, it's it's odd because as we were saying, these four guys all felt like oh, they're maybe tapped to be leading man, and yeah. then none of them have the obvious career you would expect out of them. And as we're saying, like with Oliphant and Thomas Jane, it's like maybe they were misidentified as being the type of leading man that Hollywood wanted. That was never what they were going to be good at, you know, but this Absolutely. ends Jason the- Lee's funny best friend run. Uh, right. and his leading man career in movies doesn't work. And then Damien Lewis, it takes a really long time to find his thing after he was supposed to be yeah. like, this is the new intense, serious, dramatic actor. They, they, they all survived dream catcher and then, um, flourished in tv right because right, like, tom j had hung and, all four of them yeah yeah, yeah oliphant as we said had justified and and um, deadwood and yeah it's like they they all went to tv to kind of to sow their oats i guess and, and yeah. establish themselves as uh you know as uh and, and Wahlberg, the actors that we even know today as well like Wahlberg was like oh my god this fucking the new kid on the block is now this super intense method actor who will like physically can transform himself for anything and then right. he becomes like the detective in Saw and Blue Bloods. Like he rebuilds himself yeah. as just like I'm a detective. Right. It's weird that he plays a character that sort of echoes his Sixth Sense character. Absolutely. It's like it's it's very odd. Sickly like obviously, and thin, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like obviously the Sixth Sense character is more malevolent, and this character is friendly. But when he shows up, it's like what you guys said. You're just like really like yeah, you can't do this an hour and yeah. 50 minutes in we're gonna right. be done like come on like i right. but i guess you have You're to like, we, we probably should have cut child duddits but we absolutely cannot show adult duddits <laughs> my wife my wife came in i was re-watching dreamcatcher last night my wife comes in with five minutes to go it's like the, <laughs> it's the showdown in the cabin where Duddits <laughs> is turning into a thing and the alien is a big teeth monster. And she was just like, what is this? And I was like, I, I really couldn't even begin to explain yeah. to you. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know where I would start explaining this movie to you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's special. <laughs> There's this quote from uh, uh, Kasdan on the Wikipedia page. It was, he mm. was doing an interview promoting Darling Companion, which is the only film he's directed since this in the last uh, mm. 19 years. Darling Companion, for the record, a movie I like far less than Dreamcatcher. A movie I find is the, uh, Lost the dog, dog movie. movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I find that movie yeah. like beyond aggravating, uh, and is not weird enough to be sort of interesting and admirable in the way the Dreamcatcher is with its ambition. Uh, but he he said when he was promoting that movie, and uh, you know they asked him how it hit him, and he said it left me wounded career wise, but not so much personally. I've been personally wounded by other movies where I'd written it and thought, oh God, the world's not interested in what I'm interested in. With Dreamcatcher, the career was hurt. I was planning to do the risk pool with Tom Hanks. I'd written the script from a great book by Richard Russo and it didn't happen. Then another one didn't happen. Meanwhile, two years have passed here, two years have passed there. That's how you're wounded. It's interesting that he doesn't disown it at all, that he's like, I didn't feel embarrassed by it. I didn't feel like I had fucked that one up, but I noticed that no one wanted to hire me. And then you look at his career after this and it's like, 
he does Darling Companion, which is like a pretty small contained waspy sort of big chill Grand Canyon adjacent movie, but far worse, where he clearly calls in all of his favors from like friends and, and you know, actors who had, you know, worked with him before. Yeah. Uh, and it, that movie is like a complete non-starter. And then outside of that, his career is pretty much only still existing by the virtue of Star Wars getting rebooted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he, he wrote Force Awakens, he wrote Solo, that's it. Right, yeah. he doesn't really, like, there was that period where I remember there being stories about, like, Lawrence Kasdan has written this great draft of a Clash of the Titans remake, and no one will greenlight it. And then the movie that got made was changed pretty substantially from his script. And yeah. there would be this sort of rallying cry of, like, Lawrence Kasdan's right there, why aren't we hiring him to write our blockbusters? The guy who fucking... Yeah did Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark is for hire, and he can't yeah. even get these gigs. It's odd. It's like, it really kind of hurts him more than anyone else. I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, this theory that that Goldman's career was, you know, demonstrably hurt by this. Or Kazan, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, or both right, of Goldman them. was winding well, down. Yeah. Right. But well, he yeah. might have just given up. Really. He might have just... Well, what I was thinking about was the solo situation. And yeah. that, you yeah. know, there were... There was the uh, the rumor that kind of made the rounds was that Lord and Miller were using the script as less of a a set of rules and, and more of as a general blueprint, and so there was some riffing going on that the the Kazans weren't weren't happy about. I'm wondering if it hurt them that bad, if it hurt him that bad to then like all these years later do solo and still have that that cachet to you know, potentially argue Lord and Miller off the project. I mean, there's a lot of mm. speculation in this thought, but mm. well, I, my, my feeling yeah. is that it's not the Kazans that, that did that. If they were butting heads, Lord and Miller was butting heads with um, Kathy Kennedy and the, in the exact branch. I don't think. No, see, that's Lawrence the rumor Kazan that I heard was, though, that it was about like the script. And right. The that's Kazans. what it, I have heard as well, for what it's worth. Like, even if Kennedy was the one who was getting into the arguments that the idea was like, just shoot the script. This script worked. And it, it's that's a little confounding when you see the final movie they made. Like, that yeah, position right. would be more defensible if you're like, well, they wrote this thing that was just fucking tight as a drum. And if you color outside the lines, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Right. Right. And then you see the movie and you're like, this thing doesn't know what it is. Like, this, right. like he, that script doesn't really know what movie it should be. I, I thought it was also, it's just like Kazan is like, Han Solo is my character. Like, obviously he didn't yeah. create him, but like, they're like, you know, I'm the guy who kind of built out his whole person. You know, like I, I he feels authorship there that he was right. well, that was maybe the other story by the, I, the improv yeah. and all that. Right. The yeah. other story I heard is that like, he wasn't supposed to write on Force Awakens at all originally because Michael Arndt was doing that. And then when JJ got right. hired, he was like, I'll do it if you let me rewrite the script and I want to bring Kazan on. Kasdan was already working at Solo at that point because the second the Disney sale happened, Kennedy went to Kasdan and said, like, what would it take to get you to write a Star Wars movie if it could be any Star Wars movie? And he was like, the thing I'd want to write is Solo. Like, that was his right off the bat. I have a Han Solo movie in me that I'd like to write. Which makes right. that final product weirder to me. Yes. Yeah. And, and Jonathan Kasdan, who's in this movie as an actor who plays the student that gets busted for fucking up the test. Oh, no okay. shit. That's yeah, him at yeah. the beginning okay. of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Which guy is right. that now? I'm already forgetting which one does that to him. It's, uh, uh, it's Damien Lewis. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 
he's that guy, but like, right. That, that he felt very passionate about, like he was a big fan of clone wars and everything. And his dad was like, I love Han Solo. And Jonathan Kasdan was like, I like all this expanded universe stuff. Let's make this thing together. And then that once again, seems to have like, he's done nothing since solo. Right. Hmm, Jonathan right. keeps on working right. and stuff at Lucasfilm, but Lawrence seems a little bit done once again. Yeah, I, I mean, I know Jonathan Kasdan a little bit. Um, I, I I met him uh, initially back in the day. He he wrote a movie called First Time. Or the first time it was like a Sundance. Like, I I, uh, I like that movie. Rom-com. I'm a fan of his. I, I like it I too. I met him back in the day, and I like him a lot as well as a guy. Yeah, yeah. I really I haven't talked to him a whole lot um, in recent years, but uh, like we went met up for like coffee while we were both at Sundance. You know, I was there covering it, and and uh, you know he was there with his movie. Uh, and I think that that was fairly shortly after, um, well, I guess not shortly after, cause I think that was in the, the teens, but I, I, when we were talking about it, he knew my work from ain't it cool news and he knew that I was a big Stephen King guy. And so like the first thing that he sat down he, and talked to me about when we sat down for coffee was, he was just like, yay. So I feel like I owe you an apology. Cause I'm the one that convinced my dad to do Dreamcatcher. Really? <laughs> that, that he was a, he's like, he's such a huge fan of the, of Stephen King and a huge fan of, I guess that book in particular and thought it can make a, a really badass movie. And he's just like, and I was wrong. You know, that well, was, yeah. you know what? That's interesting though, at least to know that it wasn't just sort of like, well, it's Stephen King. Like, but there was like, at least some thought of like, come on, it's so bananas or it's so, yeah. you know, it's, it's so vivid. Like maybe it'll be cool on the screen. Yeah. I, that's interesting. It's Speaking funny because of- right. And the two movies Jonathan directed were land of women and the first time, which both feel right, more right. like things his dad made. Right. Uh, yeah, they're, they're adult dramas, you know, right. comedy dramas, right? Yeah. Right, but it's like come out that he's like the big fanboy and that, right, he's the one who sort of got his father into like bringing all this expanded Star Wars lore in. He got his dad to make Dreamcatcher. And then now since Solo, he's worked on the, the Willow TV show and Indiana Jones 5. Yeah. All right, here's my, here's my final question. Do okay. we think that there's a version of this movie that would be good like for instance a version of it that leans way schlockier you know and do you you think that's possible or do you think the the source material itself is just so shaky that it it won't play no matter how you visualize it uh dave do you want to go first i certainly have thoughts i i I mean i i I like this movie and i think it's good but um (laughs) but no no i i uh i i think that there is yes there is a much more pared down take on this film with pretty much the exact same themes that probably is a solid February thriller, you know, like where it's just like, it's four guys in a cabin. There's this weird infectious alien species. And then for the final act, you bring in the military, like so many movies like that do, you don't make the military a B plot. You don't maybe need to cast Morgan for, you know, like the military, you pare down, you know, dud it to get it out of there weird opening scene with all their psychic powers probably get that out of there i mean that's the whole thing though what i'm describing is probably a more functional movie but it's also a less like demented movie and so it would probably be like you know a more reliable but forgettable like sci-fi thriller right fair enough Hmm. yeah i i I, I sort of go in the same direction which is i i think there are, are essentially three functional movies or at least three quote unquote normal movies you could have made out of this. Right. Like one is just the guys, old friends in the cabin fighting the alien invasion. 
one is sort of the more, I guess, stand by me it version of the the psychic link, and you probably figure out some way to deal with duddits that isn't what this movie does. And then it feels like the whole military side of the thing, as David said, doesn't really work as a B-plot coming in an hour in. You could make a whole movie out of that. Like, there's just too much there with, like, what, what are they called? The Blue Squad or whatever. Um, and this guy in the throes of madness and whatever. It, it, having them all in the same movie sort of breaks your brain. And I feel like if you wanted to adapt all of this, doing it with this sort of veneer of prestige makes it more confusing. If it was right. like a five-hour sci-fi channel miniseries, that also would probably make more sense. But I do agree with David that the combination of all these things together under the only circumstances where that would ever be allowed at like a $70 million budget is the entire appeal of this movie. Uh, Mick LaSalle, when he wrote his review, called it a likable disaster. And that's like exactly how I would describe it. Like, I don't like it mm. as much as David, but I do enjoy watching this movie. There's Hell something yeah. just so compelling about the fact that it exists. It certainly earns points in that regard, in that there's nothing else quite exactly like this, I no. don't think. You could maybe you could maybe make an argument for like Bonfire of the Vanities or something in terms of it just being, you know, a series of poor choices that rendered the movie very poor that, you know, made by it all the, a, like the top, the top tier, right, right. Like best actors of, of the time and best young actors at the time, best right, right, right. storytellers of the time. And this is what we get. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the addition of all the, the genre elements in this with the, that's what pushes the aliens. The edge. I think that makes it yeah. fully unique and unlike anything else I've ever seen. I think if you do it, you just you're going to have to pick the Tom Jane character to be your eyes and stick with him since he's the one that that makes it to the end or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like it's either you tell it from his point of view or you tell it from uh, Jonesy's point of view and you keep it. The big twist is that, you know, you're you're watching half of it through his uh, (laughs) his uh, mind uh, warehouse or whatever. Um, God, We didn't even touch on the mind warehouse. You know, I, I think that that's so that's the thing is because the reason why to me is this this movie doesn't work is that you you're at a distance from it um, the, the entire time. And you are that way because you don't know who you're supposed to be following. I mean, there is no arc. There is nobody to kind of bring you through this. So you're just kind of sitting back at a distance, watching different things and different perspectives and where they don't even like Rashomon it or whatever. Right. Where you're seeing all this from different perspectives and mm-hmm. and getting in there it, it you just, it just feels cold and distant like things are just happening you're not you're not invested in any way um you know you'd have to figure that out that's the first step on and actually making this work but i honestly think that without radically changing the source material you're going to be stuck you yeah know? that's you, my thing you, it's like this yeah. problem was inherently unadaptable and if you're gonna adapt it at least do the most bug nuts version possible right <laughs> like i wouldn't want the simplified versions we're talking about here i i'm sure like you know warner brothers would have preferred one of those types of movies that could have made its money back but <laughs> as an object it's so much more fascinating trying to bite all of this off at the same time yeah well, I think that is about all I have to say about Dreamcatcher for quite some time. I have one Does anyone final else have anything? That I just think speaks to like the logic of this movie and and the weird pop culture obsession of it. 
The fact that they called the aliens Ripley after Ripley, the famously mm-hmm. human character in the alien <laughs> is just sort of like such a good reflection of how the logic of this film operates. Yeah. Did you know that the, uh, the original title for the book was Cancer? No. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? Because yeah. the aliens are made of cancer, the book is specific about, right? Yeah, like, well, the that fungus that they spread... Yeah, it works as an as a cancer upon the environment. That was the idea, and uh, apparently his wife talked him out of that one. Uh, yeah, his wife's <laughs> like, "Don't call it cancer." He's like, "Fine, I'll call it Dreamcatcher." And she was like, uh, "Okay, <laughs> I guess that's better." <laughs> I, I guess here's yeah. a question I want to throw out before we end that I've been sitting on the entire time: mm. Is there a single movie in history in which farts work dramatically? <laughs> because that's no. that's sort of a moment this movie can't get past when a character won't stop farting. The farts have to be scary, right? Yeah, farts have to be scary. It is kind of like it's a situation we've all been in where it's like, oh of man, course. that guy is destroying my bathroom, and I have <laughs> to be chill about it. Like you know, like like that's the sort of tension of the stranger coming and farting but yes it's not really uh huh. scary i'm trying there's the only thing that i can come up with is Shaun of the dead where they use a fart and a huh. fart joke as an emotional punch sure at the yes. end yes which you can have it i guess operate on both levels at the same time but i don't know if there's a, a joke serious, dramatic right. right that's i guess the right. thing this movie made me ask but, well, but that's Shaun something for questions. Shaun the Dead's great yeah. answer. Yeah. I, I have no I have no answer for this, but my my brain is like trying to dig up a a movie where a dramatic moment hinged on a person farting at the wrong time. But I, I can't I can't come up with anything. Perhaps one of our listeners. Sure. Uh, Tinder Bar more has familiar with incredible, farts on film. Uh, fart work from Christopher Lloyd, but I wouldn't say it's entirely <laughs> dramatic. Fart work. <laughs> All right. Well, what are you guys working on now? What uh, where can people find you? And what do you what do you want to tease here at the end? Promote yourselves, please. Uh, yeah, I, I am writing at the Atlantic always. Uh, you can check that out. We even have a podcast now, the review that I'm on frequently, uh, but I'm a film critic there. Uh, so that's my main thing. And then we're doing blank check. Uh. I guess if this is posting, yeah. So we're we're pretty much wrapping up our Gene Campion miniseries right now, mm-hmm. and yeah, Bright Star and the Power of the Dog, I think, are all we've got left. And then there's a very exciting new filmmaker on deck that we have started to record episodes for, and it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just say if you uh, the, the next filmmaker we're covering has not done any Stephen King adaptations, but if you are a fan of Stephen King. Uh, and you listen to this podcast and you listen to uh, your beloved uh, King Cast Boys on our Carpenter miniseries, it's probably a director you would get excited about. Is that fair to say, David? Yes. I think there's, there's audience overlap. overlap. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 Without Roman any... Polanski it is. Great. <laughs> Everyone's been waiting forever. Uh, yeah, and then I, I do a thing called the George Lucas talk show that is very hard to explain, but essentially is about... Uh, uh, Connor Ratliff playing George Lucas and me playing Watto from The Phantom Menace, hosting a real talk show, interviewing people as themselves. 
so we do that on uh, planetscum.live. That's our, our Twitch channel. We do them about once a month and we're starting to tour with them. But you can watch all the old ones on YouTube uh, under the, the George Lucas uh, talk show. I don't think we've had any Dreamcatcher cast members on yet. <laughs> yes. Now that's a new goal. But we've had crazy, crazy uh, uh, people on the show who have to earnestly answer questions asked by me in a homemade Watto costume. Well, bring your bring your tour down to Austin, baby. We'll come out for you. I think we might be doing one soon. We're figuring out. We we we'd started booking a bunch of dates, and then Omicron happened, and now we're trying to rebook right. stuff. But that might happen sometime this year. Right on. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. This was a more even-handed episode than I expected. <laughs> Hell but yeah! Thank you guys for being in here today. This was a blast, and uh, can't wait to talk to you again. Many thanks to the Blank Check Boys, Mr. Griffin Newman and Mr. David Sims for joining us on our own show. They returned the favor. We graced their podcast with our presence. And so it was only fair that we wrote them into ours. And I'm very glad we did. Yes, we love those boys. David, Griffin, Griffin, Noom, Nooms. Uh, love their show. Uh, we're delighted to be on it. Delighted to have them back. And, and I'm hoping that we can uh, join forces once again. They're always welcome here. And uh, we hope y'all enjoyed it, too. But enough of that. Mm. We have important shit to talk about. Do we not? We do indeed. Uh, I think we're going to start with the bonus episode this Friday for our Patreon subscribers. Yes. Uh, we are we are bringing back a favorite guest of ours whose previous Patreon appearance was so good we threw it into the main feed. Uh, that is Mr. Shiv Ramdas. He mm. originally joined us to discuss Woe, which was the uh, Hindi adaptation of uh, Stephen King's It that bears almost no resemblance to the book or the miniseries or the movie. Uh, and that that was so good. And he brought so much great insight that we're like, you know, we want to have you back. And uh, he was like, cool, guys, here's what I want to talk about. Uh, Stephen King's relationship to po- post-colonial horror. Uh, as well he did. Uh, we, <laughs> love, we love Shiv. Very funny man. And intimidatingly intelligent man mm-hmm. i wasn't quite sure where we were going on this uh, particular <laughs> bonus episode and at a certain point i just kind of shut up because i am clearly outclassed in the conversation like i am literally too dumb to have this conversation <laughs> but uh i enjoyed hearing about it and trying to figure it out it's entertaining but it's a very chewy episode so mm. you know good luck with that <laughs> Yes, it, Shiv is like we like Scott said. He's a very funny guy, so it's not uh, a lecture, but it is definitely one of the more heady uh, bonus episodes that we've ever recorded. Indeed, to the point where, like Scott, you, I think you held up very well. I felt like I was sitting there trying to go explain to me again what we're talking about. I literally I started like three eating times. crayons halfway through this episode. That's how stupid <laughs> I am. But thankfully, Shiv was smart enough for the both of us and uh, came up with some really interesting points, specifically kind of talking about how Stephen King's roots in New England, you know, mm-hmm. kind of tie him to a lot of the post-colonial um, horror that he wanted to discuss. So, totally. so uh, yeah, no, it is uh, it is a very entertaining educational episode and that will be on our patreon this friday at patreon.com slash the kingcast sign up and get that as well as all of our other not <laughs> super heady more ridiculous goofy bullshit that we tend to do week, week in and week out if you look at the kingcast patreon bonus episodes on the mm. spectrum on the far end on one side is the episode about instances of boners in stephen king's work 
at the far other end is this episode with Shiv and post-colonial horror versus Stephen King. <laughs> Our father's house is filled with many mansions. These are the this is the the flip side to the coin of the King cast. We right. are stupid, but we are also we are definitely smart enough <clears throat> at the very least to bring in people who are smarter than us to co- tackle yes, such topics. That is true. That is true. That is our commitment to you. And speaking of, this is usually the point in the show where we tease next week's main feed episode. But we have to hold off just a smidge on doing that. Is that not right, Eric? That is very true. Typically, when we have a big guest on the show, uh, we like to scream it from the top of our lungs. We are due to record with this guest tomorrow, and I don't want to jinx it by even hinting at this actually happening. Mm-hmm. That, that's how uh, big of a deal this is going to be, I think. Mouth so, shut. It doesn't happen till it happens, um, but I can guarantee you this, that the second that we are done with the recording and have verified the audio is there, we will be hitting Twitter, blasting out uh, who our guest is next week. As, as soon as we have it locked, you're going to know about it. So we don't have a tease for next week's episode, but we're going to have one in about, I don't know, 36 hours. So um, keep your eye peeled on the KingCast feed on Twitter, which is at KingCast19 tomorrow night and yes. you will not be disappointed yeah you're either going to see us very happy or very sad if it doesn't work out we're gonna be, we're gonna have to hustle to to cover this up but i think <laughs> i'm like 99 percent. we're sure we're good here so yes. I'm, I'm feeling good feeling yeah, con- are you feeling confident i'm feeling confident well, I think that's about it, folks. That's that's it. So we'll see y'all next week for the very special episode of the KingCast, uh, the very special secretive episode of the KingCast, and uh, this Friday with Shiv Ramdas talking about post-colonial horror and its ties to Stephen King. Adios, everyone. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.